My name is Yana Healy, and I like to play Kingdom for Cleeflings because it's fun and you get to build homes for Keeflings. Then they get out of the homes, and then you can make them do work or put them in houses and or you can put them in houses or make them work and then make them unwork. And then you can build stuff like castles and paint arts and the end. And my name is Yana Haley and the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com, It's Good to Be a Gamer, Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types, and listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Hey, this is John Shindahedi, Senior Creative Art Director of Dungeons & Dragons, and you got me here on The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in episode 198, we're going to test the limits of D&D as we review the D&D Next playtesting. And with us in this episode are Joe Bittman. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Thank you, Tracy. And also joining us is our returning champion, Robert Aducci. Welcome back. Oh, champion. Thank you. Good to be back. <laughs> you get the privilege of being the uh, the one returner of the, of the group today. <laughs> Although, uh, Job, I've known you for several years now, off and on through the internets yeah. and Gen Con, right? So. Yeah, and we've gamed together. I've we been did. At your table. Yeah. You, the, my first year at Gen Con, I brought a, a little adventure that I threw together just for any time we had a chance to sit down and play. And I think I just tweeted out randomly, if anybody wants to come, here's where we're at. And, and you showed up. Yeah. I, I think I might have ran out of Tracy's Hooters game to go to yours. Oh, that might have. I th- you know what? I think that was at the same time. That's probably why I didn't make it to Tracy's, Tracy's Hooters game. I see how it is. <laughs> well, in fairness, I don't think you were even a co-host then, were you? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> now we hang out all the time. We're like we do. bosom buddies at Gen Con. Yeah. And this year we'll even get our nails done. So, supposedly. <laughs> we haven't actually scheduled that yet. I know. All right. So moving on, let's get into the news. Uh, we've got may have a bit of it to talk about because I realized as I was prepping for the episode that we have not been talking about stuff that's on the main page very much lately. So um, we're going to have five different articles to look at today, three from the main page, two from the blog, um, and talk about and see what's going on. Um, I was just telling Tracy before the show, I'm sort of – as much as I, it's invigorating and, and energizing to look, in, look into all this news and discussion and all that – I also look forward to when the new edition's done and out, because normally the the news section for the show is really short, and then we move on and get to the main topic. But uh, this is this is how we cover the the new edition for all the listeners out there. So hopefully they appreciate that and enjoy it. And if not, you know, fast forward a little bit and we'll move on. First up from the main page, the latest rule of three uh, answered three questions that was all about D and D next. That was basically the, the first point was summarized as yes, there is a more complex version of the fighter coming, and some more complex things. So that those of you who are used to you know maybe fourth edition will feel a little more at home with the fighter. Uh, they said yes, there will be 
rules for things like flanking, area effects, and opportunity uh, attacks of opportunity. And right now, spell failure is not in the game for armor, uh, but components is something that is being that is happening. Uh, you know, verbal components are just sort of assumed for all spells. Uh, material components will be listed with individual spells that need them. Right. So that's sort of what came out of the rule of three was basically, yes, we're doing this. Yes, we're doing this. Yes, we're doing this. Um, the only thing that wasn't there was basically spell fail- failure. It was the only thing that wasn't just a yes, we're doing it. Um, they basically, I, I mean, the impression I got was that they were saying, we don't plan on doing spell failure, but that could change. Yeah. Does that sort of feel right to everybody? Yeah. Sp- uh, spell yeah, yeah. failure and components were always something that, that I liked that concept, but I never really liked the way it's been implemented. Mm-hmm. It always felt like more work than fun. Well, and honestly, I think I like the way they, I mean, what they've said or what they said in that article was basically, um, no, we're not doing spell failure for wearing armor. Instead, we're just saying wizards can't cast spells and wear armor, which is really what they meant to, to imply all along with the rules to support it in the past, you know? Yeah. That's yeah, sort of what they always just wanted you to do anyway. So, mm-hmm. so that seems fine by me. Just one less mechanic to have to keep track of. Right. Just say you can't do it. Done. And and the interesting thing with the spell components is that it can be a way to help the DM limit uh, certain types of spells in their game mm-hmm. for particularly overpowering spells. But yeah. Yeah, and it's also a way. I mean, there's always that that common trope of you know, rob the PCs blind, and now suddenly the the wizard has to be very careful about what spells they have because they don't have any other components, or they have to go out into nature and and try to put together a few things to cast a spell here or there, you know, nothing, nothing that uh, you, that you want to do regularly, but, but works well, uh, every now and then. I always felt like the components were, were a result of kind of like the quadratic wizard, uh, linear fighter kind of paradigm, because it was a way, as Tracy said, to limit mm-hmm. powerful spells. And now if they're trying to make them, you know, more even, I feel like spell components, if used, you know, harshly could kind of hinder the wizard now. Well, and I like the idea of of spell components, material components, and that kind of stuff um, in flavor more than I do in mechanics. Yeah. Me you know, it makes sense to me that they're there. That's how mm-hmm. spells work, but I don't necessarily need a mechanic for it. We can just assume that you've got them. Right, but on the other hand, then if people ha- just assume that you have them, I feel like that's how fourth edition is, where it's kind of assumed that you have spell components, so they never really come into play because if you took them out, then you would be making making it so a character couldn't use you know their at wills or, or or encounters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for example, <clears throat> one thing uh, I noticed like with the fancy and magic now is they also added some of the spells have like a, a ritual way to cast the spell um, that also requires components. And um, I, I thought that was a cool uh, kind of twist on 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 fancy and magic where you know you have to prepare some of your spells but you know you could also use a ritual if you have the components and, mm-hmm. and cast it yeah and that works that, that's a, an interesting sort of hybrid of of what like what fourth edition did with with spells separate from rituals mm-hmm. it's sort of being able to do both with the same thing mm-hmm. they also in the latest dragon's eye view uh talked about the idea of iconics um, you know, in the artwork, have it, like they did in third edition, where they had the same sort of cast of characters that showed up in a bunch of books. Um, they've done it in fourth edition, but more on a book by book basis. 
You know, like Heroes of the, of the Feywild had a bunch of Iconics that showed up all throughout that book, but weren't necessarily in other books. And they're just sort of asking the question, should D&D Next have Iconics? You know, is there value in that? Is that something people enjoy? Or or should we just let the artists be free to, to do what they want to do? Thoughts? I think that, uh, no, go ahead, Joe. Uh, that was, I, was, I was just saying who has oh. thoughts, but go ahead. Uh, I uh, think that, uh, I like the idea of Iconics. I'm really familiar with the third edition Iconics and not really with any fourth edition ones. I, f- I, I really can't tell, couldn't tell you a single one actually right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people probably read, you know, get a lot of their stuff from the, uh, from the D&D Insider and stuff, uh, on the online, you know, the compendium, and it doesn't have a lot of the, the, the fluff. And so I figure, I, I think that a lot of people don't recognize them as much, um, and I think it would help uh, to go back to the third edition style. Uh, personally, I love the Iconics. I, I really hope they, they move forward with that. Yeah, and I liked the third edition Iconics. And, and, and you're right, Robert. They're much more recognizable. But I think that's because they did Iconics that showed up in most of the books. You know, mm-hmm. So the same Iconics showing up over and over and over again in, in multiple products. In fourth edition, they did some really good things with, with similar sorts of, of concepts, but it was, like I said, on a book-by-book basis. Like Heroes of the Feywild had, had a really cool set of characters and almost told a story, a narrative, with the pictures as you go through the book, which is really cool. Um, but it was only in that book, so you never really got to know them as characters. You didn't you know, learn their names because it was just in that one book, and then they moved on to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be interesting to see if they could take the best of both worlds and see how that plays. Yeah, cause I like having lots of different iconics. I mean, so Pathfinder kind of does that with their mm-hmm. classes. Each class has an iconic, uh, but because they keep adding classes, we keep getting more and more, which is cool right. to me. Although, to a certain point, you keep—if you keep adding more and more iconics, they become a little less iconic. You know, you, they become—they <laughs> le- become less mem- uh, memorable. Well, they right. become the iconic for the class. Right. I mean, which is kind of what you—you want. You want one thing. I think that does help. Uh, particularly people so it helps both people who are newer to the game because they can see a, a fully developed character and we saw that with the most recent 40 book the into the unknown mm-hmm. where they talked about building the entire character um and then it also helps i think players and dms who aren't new uh just giving ideas all right so the next article from the main page is the latest legends of lore which just came out was that today or, or yesterday as we're recording today uh which talks about a little bit more about math uh i'm sorry math monsters uh and how to design monsters although some of that deals with the math um you know they talk about how having how they keep the term they refer to as flattened math you know um where your monsters are going to be more useful for longer so your low level goblin is still going to be useful at higher levels you can just up the challenge as the because the, the characters have, have gone up in level and are more powerful. You can up the challenge by just adding more of the goblins. But the math still works out that they still have to be hit and could be missed, and they can, you know the damage still sort of works. Um, you know you just throw more of those goblins in, and, and now suddenly you can use it for a tenth level party or whatever. No thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I mean, so I I still kind of wonder how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I hear a lot with 3 and 3.5 stuff is that it's hard to tell exactly what kind of challenge a monster is going to present to the party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I kind of worry about this a little bit more again, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'll be curious to see how, how it plays out. Um, I feel like 
it has the like there's potential there that this could be really good in terms mm-hmm. of prep because there's a lot more um, available to us to choose from. I also yeah I worry about like you said being able to to suss out exactly what I should and should not be using to 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 create an appropriate challenge for my players. Um, and I'm also a little bit cons- I'm not concerned, but I'd be curious to see. And this this would take years of play, right, to find out exactly. Um, whether it would just get old, you know, we've been fighting goblins since first level. We're now fifteenth level. Can we just move on to a new challenge? <laughs> you know? yeah, right. Yeah, I, f- I feel like you could still do that in fourth edition. Like they they kind of did that a little bit, but you know, it would be in fourth edition. It's pretty easy to just level up a monster or whatever, you know, with some some obvious changes. But um, I feel like with this, they're just sort of like making it into the core and trying to build it into the math, which is nice. But one of the things that sort of came up with that that I've experienced in play was that you know if they're fighting 10 skeletons and 10 zombies and some have advantage and some have disadvantage it gets to be a bit of a pain and um there mike merles just did a um an ask me anything on reddit Mm -hmm. and uh, he actually allayed some of those fears saying that they're going to have like a swarm mechanic which is great and uh if you guys want to check that out um that's a really good um post on reddit there's tons of questions, um, and he talks about a lot of stuff that I think people have been thinking about. Right on. I will add it to the list of things to put in the show notes. I, I want to just disagree with you slightly, Robert. It just in the, you know, if you look at the monster uh, uh, manuals, uh, there there's very de- uh, clear, you know, delineation of, you know, say a kobold, you know, after monster bot was, you know, a level one to three threat. I mean, you can go back in with the character builder and, and re-level some of this stuff, but um, right. the monsters were de- definitely locked into like a certain level range as you went through um, all the tiers. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that you know the ones that are in in all the books have, definitely have their sort of set tiers. But I'm just saying that with the fourth fourth edition, like the way you could create monsters with the right. the builder, it was easy to Still you know if you wanted to yeah yeah, yeah definitely, exactly definitely. right. Yeah, and, and at the, on the one hand, um, I like the idea of having my monsters available to me over a, the whole campaign. On the other hand, um, and I, I guess this kind of goes back to my previous point, is, is that I also like my my players to be or my players' characters to become more powerful and to feel like they're you know you know to put it in fourth edition terms, heroic or epic. You know, I want them to feel like they're becoming real players in the world, and if they're still able to be challenged by the same thing that, that challenged them at, at level one or two, um, that doesn't feel very epic to me. But in any well, case, if you go ahead, no, I was going to I was, I was uh, move on. But if you have something to add, go ahead. Well, if you, I mean, if if you know, at level one and two, if you can kill ten goblins, but at you know. 10th level you should be able to still slaughter 10 goblins i feel like that's still the way it is but at 10th level you'll be fighting 100 goblins instead of 10 yeah yeah i mean ultimately it's one of those things where we'll have to see how it plays out and see how it feels when we actually get there the other thing that came out in that article is that for humanoids type monsters they're going to avoid giving them special powers you know, it's it's basically going to be here's their stats and here's their basic attacks and that's what they do. They're going to reserve sort of the the complexity and the special powers for you know, the chieftains and the shamans and those kinds of characters who will then make the other monsters do you know cool things. Right. And was there something? I, I know I saw it somewhere. And I can't remember if I saw it in in this article about giving assigning XP to those powers. 
Like additional XP? Hmm, maybe. Mm, I don't remember seeing that. I don't either, okay. but... I'm drawing a blank. And I'm okay. not sure, like, that's one of those things. I read it and I was kind of like, oh, it's, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, I, I mean, I did used to like the, that each, you know, race had their own special abilities, so maybe this will kind of do that, you know, give it the same feel. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll yeah. See. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, instead of having what is it, the, the kobolds that had the shifty quality mm-hmm. in 4th edition or have them in 4th in edition, um, it's sort of like saying instead of giving them that, we're going to give, you know, their their shaman the ability to let them shift around. Um, right. Which on some of that makes some sense and some of that it, – sometimes it also makes sense to say, you know what, this is just – a feature of this kind of creature, right? Um, and we'll see, again, we'll, I guess we'll have to see how it plays out. And ultimately, if nothing else, they're keeping it simpler, which is pushing the the fast combats that people seem to really like about um, the, their playtest experiences in the game. So, moving on, uh, we got two new blog articles that we haven't talked about yet. One of them is called Feet Tax and, and Bloat, mm-hmm. uh, where basically they're saying we're going to try to not have any feet taxes. There's not going to be any feet that you feel like you need to have for your character. Uh, if you want to have a character that's good at, for example, hitting things with its weapon, then you should be a fighter. You shouldn't have to take these feats to be good at hitting things with your weapon. We're just going to build them into the classes and then leave the feats available to, instead of scaling you up and down and making you more or less powerful, instead... You know, scale you horizontally so that you can create more options for what your character can do with feats. I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Player books, um, I think, is, you know, what they try to put out to make money, and I think that's where feats come from. So, Mm -hmm. well, and and that ties into the, the other point of the this blog article um which was that they're they're really going to, going to try to avoid the bloat by making sure anytime they create a feat it they create it for the express purpose of of illustrating a story element you know being really good about making sure we have good story consistency for a reason that this feat should exist and otherwise we're not going to just design feats to design feats um although i would argue every designer who ever designed a feat for any other edition had the exact same idea in mind, or at least good ones. I, I mean, every good designer would say the exact same thing about everything they've ever designed. See, I don't think that was true at the beginning of 4E, unfortunately. As much as I love 4E, I, I, I feel like at the beginning there was a lot of stuff that was just created to fill books instead of for story stuff. No, I th- Exactly, like player books, so they could sell it to all the players because there's only one DM and to five players. Yeah, I mean, but I feel like th- I mean, maybe the people who who greenlit, you know, said, yes, go ahead and, and, and write that feat, had that idea. But I, I feel pretty confident that the people who actually took the time to design those feats weren't just saying, well, we can manipulate the math this way, let's make a feat for it, you know. They had a, a, an image, a story idea, I think, in mind when they designed even even those that we feel like are are the chuff, so to speak. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can all be cynical and, and assume that they were just money-grubbing, but I feel like they were probably trying to design story i don't feel like they were money grubbing but i just feel like they were trying to fill boxes like tracy said you know uh you know they had all the different powers or uh power sources and so they were trying to make things fit into those different power sources and you know gave them ideas and they were just being designers but i still feel like it was more forced than uh organic yeah they had to i mean a lot I think a lot of them probably 
or a good number of them had story elements behind them, but I think other ones might have been just, I have X number of words to fill still. And I don't like saying that, but I, I, I think there's an element to it. Well, I agree with you, Tracy. I will, I will take it on the authority of the people who have actually written for Wizards that apparently that's how you guys work, and so that's how it is. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the last blog article then was called The Spy Who Fireballed Me, and it was uh, – previous articles talked about how themes and backgrounds um, can work to create less conventional sort of stereotypical characters. And, and the example they gave was a wizard who is a spy and takes sort of the spy backgrounds and themes to, the, to make that happen. And this article was largely just them providing an example. You know, let me give you a story of a character that would fit into that sort of role and be a wizard who is a spy. You know, that spies don't all have to be rogues. Um, which I feel like, um, I, I don't know. Apparently it was more controversial because they felt like uh, coming back to it. But I felt like that was one of the strengths of, of concepts. You know, on, on one hand, I like restrictions in some areas. And in some areas, I like to be able to go less restricted. And I feel like having themes and backgrounds that can work in non-conventional ways is not necessarily a bad thing. That... Yeah, I think that's a great way to uh, to make your play, your characters more robust, more robust and um, kind of break the molds. So if you want to play, you know, like old basic edition, you you don't play with themes and backgrounds, you just play with your base classes and so you just get those 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 archetypes but if you want to break those then you know you start adding backgrounds and themes so i think that's cool all right on well that's all we got for news finally i know it was a lot <laughs> but uh, i guess we have some tome news though so we're coming up on episode 200 and i will do things and it will be awesome uh we also have a bunch of live recordings at gen con yeah on we do on friday at 6 p.m., we're going to do our D&D advice live. Which we're working on some guests for that. Scheduling's been a little bit diff more difficult than expected because um, it happens to be right before the Yennies. So a lot of the designers and things are going to that. And we also have the Gamer to Gamer live podcast recording and Behind the DM Screen on Saturday. The first one's at 6 and the second one's at 7. Yeah, in the, in the same place. So if you can just come to one and stay for both of them, that'd be great. Uh, in fact, everybody wants to be at the Gamer to Gamer at 6. I promise you do. I think they will. I, I, I would not turn down the opportunity to, to go to Gamer to Gamer and ask questions from Chris Perkins. I would love to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to there. that. All right. I'll see you both there then, right? Yeah, I'm going, definitely. Sweet. All right, and other than that, we have some upcoming episodes. Uh, this month's book club episode, which is, I think, the last thing we're recording yet this month, is Spinner of Lies by Bruce Cordell. <laughs> this month, of course, being June and not knowing when you're listening to this. Um, next month, we're looking at the our book club book is Skeen of Shadows. Skeen of, Sha Skeen of Shadows. That's how you say it, right? Okay, good. Skeen of Shadows um, will be that book then. And uh, we're going to – with the new edition – it may not surprise people that the catalog has less, has fewer and fewer books coming out, products coming out from Wizards of the Coast. So uh, we are looking at this, is, at this as an opportunity to look at some other things, some other aspects of our game that could be useful. So we're going to give some advice on using digital tools and look at a bunch of digital tools that we use. And we're going to uh, re review some webcomics, or at least that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. And, of course, we have the, the, the famous 
long-awaited episode 200 that uh, I have no idea what it's going to be, but we're going to schedule it, and Tracy's going to amaze me with its awesomeness. Exactly. My expectations are really high. I'm just saying, really high. Okay. (laughs) I'll deliver. Uh Uh-huh. But in this episode, we're we're discussing D&D Next and the playtesting experience. And we'll do that right after we hear from our sponsor, Continue Magazine. They just released their second issue, and it's full of great stuff for gamers. Uh, there's stuff about video games, war games, card and board games. And there's also an article about the use of the rogue throughout gaming and some great GMing at convention advice from our friend of the show, Chatty DM, and more. Yeah, in fact, there's several articles in there that I thought you would particularly be interested in, Tracy. Oh, yeah? But... Uh... I didn't want to put them in there because I knew I was going to make you read that that bit. <laughs> so uh, there's one on on the role of sex in gaming, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, and how you know nobody seems to ha- have quite figured out how to nail how to do relationships in games and, and that kind of stuff. So it's good stuff in there. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. And now it's time to talk about D&D Next playtesting. First, let's uh, go through a little bit of of each of our... how much of experience we have with playtesting D and D next? How many times have we played it? Um, you know, what were our what were our groups sort of like? You know, what was our our what was the circumstances of it? You know, was it with a, an LFR group that we normally play with, or was it with our home group, or you know, all that kind of stuff? So, who wants to start? I'll go. Um, so, I've played it uh, three times now. Uh, each time as a GM, a DM. Um, and I don't have a regular group right now, so um, I just sent an email out to all the people that have played at one point or another in my group. And um, each time I've gotten about 75% of the people from that and a couple people from the meetup. Um, the local meetup's pretty uh, pretty active, so uh, all those people were familiar with, uh, with, with the, uh, the new edition and stuff. And so first night I played it with six players and um, used Theater of the Mind style. That was great. Um, although I'm a little rusty at Theater of the Mind, so it took it took a bit. Uh, the second time, um, six players again, and I used maps this time, um, just like in fourth edition, and uh, that I thought went better just because it was easier to visualize. And then the last time, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we only had four players, and I uh, they were all third level, and we played that way, and that was uh, pretty interesting as well. So that's just a general overview of what I've done so far. So were all of your players... Um previously fourth edition players or or third edition or what were they doing uh so i think i only had two people um in the first group that were friends of another player that uh one had played a little bit of third edition and one they last played in first edition Mm -hmm. other than that they were uh, all fourth edition players for the most part okay uh tracy you're next okay i've played twice but i haven't played with the newest uh, docs. 
uh, in part because they had that limit on online play. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a regular group right now because one of them had a baby and two of them moved away. So, oh, how unreasonable of them. I know. It's kind of a, an awkward time. <laughs> so you, But you played twice during the friends and family period. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. And that was with your home group? With uh, some of my friends who I got to sign the... Uh, the NDA. I had a, I actually had an issue trying to get people to sign an NDA, so oh. that was one of my difficulties as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Job. Uh, well, I, I uh, played the friends and family a couple times, and uh, that was awesome because um, I live in Seattle, and uh, my DM was uh, Logan Bonner, who uh, a name you might recognize, and uh, we had. Um, Let's see. Sage Latour from Dungeon World. Um, Jonathan Walton uh, that does Game Chef, I think. Uh, John Harper, who wrote Lady, Lady Blackbird. And uh, Twyla Dawn. Um, forgot what she did, but she was really cool. And uh, so that was a great uh, couple of games. And uh, we really tore apart the game and talked about it afterwards. So that was really exciting. Um, and then I played, I've DM'd a couple games uh, since then. And um, um, I think the hardest thing, probably in our first play test, was um, uh, is uh, you know we, we kind of drew out a lot of the stuff onto uh, the grid and used minis, <clears throat> kind of loosely. But my impression is it really slowed down the game. And um, you know I, I I used to play AD and D. That's my favorite edition, really. And uh, I kind of like the looser, just well they're sort of there, you know, and and here and and. I'd rather have combat, you know, with 15 goblins or kobolds take, you know, 20, 30 minutes, not an hour. So very good. Uh, My, I have played, I played in the friends and family play test. I did that once or twice. And I've done the, the current play test, the open, the more quote unquote open play test. um, Two times now. Yeah, that's right. Two times now. Uh, my, I've basically taken my, my regular game night and split it in half. So we're spending half of our time in our norm, normal 4th edition campaign. So that can sort of continue on towards its natural conclusion. But then we're spending half of our time doing playtesting stuff. Uh, we probably would have gotten in a few other um, playtesting opportunities for D&D Next. But we were doing some other stuff on some nights. So we, we didn't get to, to do as much. Um, and my group is pretty much all fourth edition players. It's all the, I mean, it's because of that, those circumstances, right? It's all my home group that's been playing the fourth edition campaigns for four years with me. Um, so they're largely used to fourth edition, although many of them have played third, and one of them had played first edition and then went from first edition straight to fourth. Um, so we've got a, some range of experience in there as well. And I've DM'd all of those sessions. I haven't actually sat down and played a D&D next yet. I've only DM'd it. Same here. So let's talk about what we like or what went well. What's been good about our experiences? I hear lots of good things about combat speed. Yeah, that was definitely a, a bonus. I think uh, we got through you know, pretty much about six combat encounters plus a whole slew of non-combat encounters in about five hours hmm. for the most part. Yeah, I find that we're not moving – I mean we're moving faster than we do in our fourth edition games, but we're not moving super fast in our combats. Um, 
part of it's because part, I'll, uh, sometimes I'm using the map, and, and you're right. That uh, Job, I think you mentioned earlier, that does slow things down quite a bit. Um, or is that Robert that mentioned that? That was best Job. Okay, so yeah, the, drawing out the map, and, and actually, my last, the last time I played, uh, I did a little bit of both. Right when I had a when I had an encounter with, you know, there were six goblins, and then three or four more were going to join in from another room partway through the, the encounter. I drew that on the out on the map, but when they got to the uh, the the dungeon room or the torture chamber or whatever it is. There's only two goblins in there. There's no more that are going to join. You know what? We don't need to draw that out. Let's just describe and do it theater of the mind style. And that worked out pretty well and, and moved along pretty quickly. I think having that flexibility to use that combination um, is probably one of the benefits of, of what's going on. Yeah, but I wonder how, uh, you know, I think in one of the more recent articles, I can't remember where I read it. Oh, I think actually in that uh, Reddit article, um, Merle's talks about how that's you know more tactical choices are going to be a module. So what happens when you add those tactical choices and the game becomes more like fourth edition, which is heavily tactical? Is it going to be harder to do those theater of the mind things for the same reason that it's sort of difficult to do it in fourth edition? I mean, I, th- I think that depends on how they add those tactical choices, right? If it's just a set right. of optional rules, then that's fine. If it's you know a set of powers and feats and that kind of stuff. Um, then that may not work as well, right? Because then you've got players who have chosen specific feats mm-hmm. th- that when you go through to the mind, suddenly are useless. Yeah, right? that yeah. was the big problem we had in 4th edition was that a lot of people had powers that they needed to know exactly where all the enemies were to find out if it was a good use of their power or not. Right. I've read some, uh, I think someone's blog on the Wizard site, you know, just a, a user, um, but he talked about having, you know, just the way you would mitigate that would be to make the the ranges on the powers be specific and vague at the same time. So it could be close, and close is 1 to 3, and medium is 6 to 9 squares, you know, so so that you could use the numbers, or you could just say close, medium, or far. Which, I, yeah. it, you know, accidentally, I think, is sort of what 3rd Edition did. 3rd Edition, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think, did that for that reason. I think they just sort of created a, a short, medium, and long range for spells and things. Yeah, just to yeah. sort of say that you know th- those are the three different possible <laughs> ranges, and we're going to deal with everything else. Yeah, and to be honest, a lot of times I think the issue is more the the melee stuff, uh, attacks of opportunity, or um, certain types of defense, or putting mm-hmm. a mark on somebody, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found that uh, we had two defenders in our group in the last. Um, and by defenders, I mean people with the defender, what is it, background or theme, um, who were able to basically just bottleneck the, you know, they're they're facing vastly superior numbers. And so they just sort of take these two defenders and stick them in the front, and everybody else just shoots over their, their allies. But it was quickly oh, became a, clear to us that using the defendery power most of the time was actually worse than just using the dodge ability that everybody can do because the defendery power gave some, gave an, an attacker disadvantage for, for an attack. But if you dodged, it was a bonus to your, your AC for all attacks. Mm, we didn't you know? pick that up. That's a good, good point. Well, it's four on your AC and plus four to deck saves. Right. Unless you're, unless you're immobilized. But we also found it a little bit clunky to deal with the the cover, because your allies grant cover, which meant that we were constantly 
every, every I'd say ninety five percent of of the the missile or ranged attacks were done with cover. To the point that I'm just like, you know, why don't we just change the math? If, if we're just going to assume that everybody always has cover, <laughs> let's just change the math and give everybody minus two to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Other experiences? Well, um, uh, we were a little bit confused about the whole hide um, mechanic, but that's sort of been spelled out a bit in one place or another. And um, Teos Abadia, he posted a really good uh, – he's, he's Alpha Stream 1 on the Wizards – um, he posted a really good uh, blog about uh, the lurker fallacy, he called it. And it was really interesting um, about how he talked about the problems with the way kind of workers, lurkers or, or the rogue works right now mm-hmm. um, and why you would or wouldn't want to do their power. So that, that was a really interesting, uh, interesting read. And- so is that dealing with the issue? Because this is something we noticed in our last session as well is that our rogues were basically uh, – because you can split your movement – Mm-hmm. They'd move out from around a corner, shoot because they, you know, because they're com- coming out from from being hidden. So they get a, a, what is it, advantage or whatever that allows them mm-hmm. to to also do their sneak attack damage, and then use the rest of their movement to go back around the corner. So they've got complete cover and they're hidden again. Yeah, but they're not. Te- I don't think they're technically hidden. Um, the way that it kind of seemed to shake out was that you had to spend an action to hide, even when you're completely out of sight. Yeah, because they, they, I guess they would still know you're there or something like that. But that's kind of mm. what it seemed like through various readings of blogs and and okay. rules posts and stuff. So that what that's not what was what's in the in the rules is written at this point, but that's sort of what where they're going with it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought that too. It's like if you're hidden, they have no idea where you are. Whereas if you just moved out of line of sight, well, that's what they did. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I will remember that for next time. <laughs> yeah, if you look, I, I just I just sent you the blog post, and he yep. he really breaks it down as to why you would or wouldn't want to do want want to hide, and, and it kind of it's a pretty good argument. Um, so I kind of I hope that they're uh, they're watching his blog. I will link it in the show notes. I, I had one other problem with the stealth check is they're doing the same thing as as they did in fourth is um uh you know, the, the your stealth check is going to be opposed by every single. Uh, the way the rules are written by every single creature that's in the area. So, I mean, that really diminishes um, your chances. I, when I play, I just house rule mm-hmm. it. Like, I'm just going to roll once for these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially if there's a lot. If nothing else, you know, when they're going up against, what was it, like 14 hobgoblins? I don't want to take the time to roll 14 dice. Right, yeah, exactly. Like, there's no way. Yeah, I feel like you could make that easier by just saying, you know, instead of having an opposed check, you could just say it's 10 plus whatever uh their stat is and then and then that's your that's your number if you make it you're good if not they one of them sees you sure yeah that's good you'd probably add a mo- i don't know it, it, people would probably hate this but you could also add a modifier given how many how, how many creatures there are because mm-hmm. if there's 14 of them it's probably harder to hide than if they're true three. yeah that'd be a good idea so has anybody else found that most of the small creatures um are basically two hit point minions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like kobolds, yeah, no, goblins, totally all that. that. Yeah. yeah, most of them are. They either go down in one round or they go down in two, uh, or one hit or two hits. You know, and there's no in between. Right, and doesn't the fighter have that power if they get one down or ability that if they get one down to zero, I, I think it's second level or something they can hit again. 
Oh, that may be. Uh, we, we haven't gotten to second level. Oh. <laughs> I was just thinking that was kind of, that was kind of actually kind of cool to me. Which is just a playoff of Cleave, isn't it? That was uh, that was third edition cleave. Is if you drop something, you got to attack again, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I haven't got. I haven't really gotten a chance to look at, at the player stuff too much. I've just been busy with the DM stuff, and um, obviously the biggest thing that I think that uh, kind of changed so far has been the, the advantage rules, um, mm-hmm. which I was unfamiliar with anything like that. But some people had po- had pointed out that there were several of the games that have similar. Um, similar mechanics but but I, I really like it it makes it makes uh adjudicating things a lot easier when you're doing it on the fly just say yes you have disadvantage or you have advantage for for whatever you're doing i i really liked it yeah i think we still have to there's still a mind shift that D players have to make to figure out when it's appropriate to use advantage and disadvantage because they're a lot more swingy than just a plus two minus two you know mm-hmm. it's a lot bigger difference um i i didn't we talked to Mike Merles for our previous episode, which went out today, um, and he basically said, "Well, if it's a big enough deal to give them advantage, then then do. And if it's not, if it's if it's not a big enough deal to give them advantage, is you know it would be what we typically in a previous edition do a plus two, plus one, whatever. Then it's probably not worth bothering to keep track of." You know, right. if, the, if the advantage is big enough to, to keep track of, then then give them advantage. If it's not big enough to, to give advantage to, then it's not worth our time. Let's move on and keep things moving quickly. Yeah, that's kind of how we were playing it. Yeah. So that's interesting because that brings up all kinds of issues with like flanking. Because my my group is is and, and this part, maybe this is part of the fallacy of of what how we're playing the game. Right, we're doing our fourth edition game and then we're doing um, the playtesting right afterwards. Um, but that means that it's hard to make that mind shift because they really want flanking to always matter. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't, yeah. you know, in theory, it shouldn't anyway, always, always matter. Yeah. That was one of the things that we had a little bit of not trouble, but just, you know, like you said, just mind shift of changing your thought mm-hmm. thoughts to, to that not mattering. And as well as, you know, attacks of opportunity and stuff like that. So when we, Doing it in a theater of the mind style, it made those kind of things kind of not matter. But when we were playing with miniatures, everybody wanted it to matter, mm-hmm. um, like you said. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be curious. I mean, right now, I think everybody's really high on the concept of advantage and disadvantage, and it may be great. I don't know yet. Um, I feel like a lot of people are very excited about it and really in favor of it because it's new and fresh, you know. But let's mm-hmm. let's see where we're at after a year of playtesting and see if we still think it's new and fresh and if it still works for us if we're, or if we're starting to see some of the warts of the, of the idea. Well, I, I like it. I mean, it's, you know, basically some of the blogs I've seen on, on the math, it's, you know, basically like plus or minus five. But, you know, rolling 2d20s, that's pretty cool. I, it feels cool to me at the table at least. So. Well, just play, right. just play an Avenger. <laughs> and, right, and the big yeah. thing is, and the big thing is, you get that big plus four, plus five bonus on things that you're likely to succeed at anyway. I'm pretty sure that's how the math works. And then the mm-hmm. things where you would have needed a twenty or like rolling a two, uh, it doesn't give you as much of an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Or that's disadvantage. You're, yeah, you're reminding me, Jeff. I didn't like that that post that that Mike Shea did about adding disadvantage to. And, and uh, advantage to, to 4e just because you've completely, you know, thrown the Avengers coolness out the window. Yeah. <laughs> Only if you're playing an Avenger, though. <laughs> if nobody's right. playing an Avenger. 
Good. Any other uh, experiences or things you want to share about what went well or what didn't go well? I think we sort of wandered into both categories. Uh, for, for me, it was players not understanding that you couldn't just run into a room with ten or so mm-hmm. uh, huge creatures. Yeah, it, is de- <laughs> it, was, it is definitely a mind shift. Um, in, in many ways, it definitely um, feels, at least right now, it feels a lot older school. Right. In terms of deadly, yeah, deadliness and things, you know, I think the first time we played when, when it was during the friends and family playtest, um, they we were doing Caves of Chaos like everybody is, right? And they went into the the kobold section first, which actually is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Right? It's well, it's contained and and uh, they're probably the easiest creatures to fight. But uh, they had to. I mean, they went up to the to the front the, to the cave entrance, fought four or five guardians, and were injured enough they had to go back and rest. And then they came back, and there were more guards, and they fought them again. And then they were injured enough; they had to go back and rest. It, you know, it took them three times just to get in, just to get inside the cave. <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which you know, suddenly the five minute workday looks like uh, you know, extra hours. <laughs> <laughs> did they did they run into the room with forty of them? They did, and but at that point, you know, this was their third time through, and at that point, they'd they'd sort of change their mindset and figure out their tactics a little bit better and they were able to bottleneck them and they actually they took out all 40 of them nice in one fight yeah yeah i kind of mitigated that because i'd read some other people's you know that some other people's articles that that had the same sort of issues that people were (laughs) dying and and not realizing you know how the system worked and so i told everybody that 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 was sort of going to be the situation and that they had to you know think more old school style And, and fortunately i think i had a few of those sorts of older players that that kind of could get into that mindset easier, and so um, they were doing things like uh, lighting grease on fire with a bunch of skeletons in it, and and to where it only did a little bit. You know, as a DM, I just said, okay, it does a little bit extra damage, but that was enough to kill a bunch of them and whatnot. Sure. So, yeah, I kind of like going back to that 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 sort of uh, creative use of spells. Yeah, sometimes that that I have issues with that too. Also, um, mm-hmm. not, not creative use of spells. I don't have issues with that. But like when we were when we got into the the goblin section of of the caves of chaos, when we with the current playtest document, they found a barrel and decided, well, we're just going to roll this barrel around everywhere we go and find some opportunity to roll it down a corridor <laughs> at somebody. Because you know this is what's going to help us help us out of survival. And it's just like you know what. You're making tons of noise, rolling that thing right. around, and it's just going to cause more trouble. And I don't even want to keep track of it or figure out how to adjudicate it because it's just not a very good idea anyway. <laughs> you know? But yeah, it, that was definitely something that from older editions that makes it more fun, but also as a DM can make it exhaustive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have to think of ways to to like outsmart the players, basically. Uh, you know, so. Yeah, it's kind of hit and miss, I guess. It depends on the DM and, and the players, really. Mm-hmm. No, I, I it definitely um, – and this gets into a little bit of, of the feel of the game, which is one of the next things I want to talk about anyway. So we might as well make that transition. It feels very old school um, right now, but we're also at a, at a base core. And in – I mean in theory, the old school version of the game was also sort of the core that everything else was eventually built on, right? Um so I feel like as more options come out and more um, modules are, are playtests and whatever, it's going to feel a little bit more like something in the middle, you know? Right now it feels like an old school game, which if this was, if this was D&D Next and they published it tomorrow, I don't think I'd play. 
because that's not the style of game that I that I want to play. But I feel like it's going in a in a direction where the what we're playing now is not necessarily what we're going to be playing when it's published. You know, mm-hmm. that we'll be able to tailor it and make it into a game that we will like. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, as far as the friends and family playtest, I really uh, think the new playtest rules are so much better than the old ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. My um. The idea. A little dis- I was a little disheartened <laughs> after well, my first couple playtests. The one thing that, that I mean, I feel like there were two big changes, um, but the one thing that drove my group nuts, especially one player, was the guy who played the wizard, because of the opposed spell rolls on every single spell, was just bogging things down and slowing things down and making it so he was missing with the simplest little spells. That he was completely ineffective for one entire combat just because he couldn't make the rolls, you know. It was just really frustrating for him. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then there, and the healing too, right? It changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, the healing has changed a lot. And then, of course, the addition of, of um, advantage and disadvantage are one of the other big changes. Yeah. Oh, that's a fairly recent change. Yeah. Yeah, the healing is a big one for me because when we we played it, I I was looking through everything for healing potions because I was like, "There's got to be more healing than this." <laughs> oh yeah, it was, <laughs> it was uh, really healing, and, and you know what? I think it's still light on healing. Um, yeah, it I was t- a touch originally, right? I think it still is. Oh, it was what? I thought it was. I thought it was in within five. Now I thought healing word was within five. I, th- I, th- I thought the cleric's heal was still still touch, but I don't. I don't. Again, I'm DMing, not playing, so. Yeah, I'd have, yeah I'd and have, I thought the uh, the other cleric had. I think one cleric had touch and one cleric was ranged. Oh, uh, maybe uh, that's what happened. I can't yeah. remember. Like I'm DM too. <laughs> yeah. And the overnight overnight rest now gives everything back. I thought because I thought I heard people upset about that still. And the addition but, the addition of the of the hit dice for yeah. healing, healing a short rest helps a lot too. Which is also confusing a lot of people, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't feel like the hit dice mechanic is very well explained in the document, but once once, old, once I figured it out, it worked and I understood. And it's old an old term that used to mean something different, yeah, right? It, yes, it did. Yeah. Like dramatically different. Right. Yeah. Because at one I point, like the idea, but the like you said, it's too different of a of a term. Right. At one point, I, I think feel like they even say in the in the mechanic something about being able to use one of your hit dice. Well, but okay, but how many hit dice do you get then? Like, I didn't understand. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know. Well, I'm I'm still confused. Actually, I, I need to call up that hotline because, um, like, a lot of times they refer to like you know you get two hit dice and your maximum hit points is twenty one, like in the class write ups. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not even I, sure what that means. So that I think my understanding is that essentially means you have two healing surges, but instead of a, a set amount, you just roll the the die. So right, right. And then, but you can't go more than twenty-one hit points, even if you rolled. If you had a hit die of twelve and you're only down ten, you couldn't go to twenty-two. To twenty-two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel, and, and that's the kind of stuff that I th- think they're they're playing around with, and we'll see where it goes and, and how it develops. I, I definitely got the impression from our interview with Mike Merles in the last episode that that healing is one of those things that they 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 recognize is still an issue and something they're working on. And I just checked the spell text for healing word. It is with, um, a target within – the effect is a target within 50 feet. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's for healing word. But then cure light wounds I thought was still touch or something. Um, oh, that, maybe that's that, what it is. That, that might be the difference. Yeah. But talking about um, healing, like I feel 
I don't want them to go to more healing. I like less healing. I like I like uh, that it can slowly drain your resources and it more be have it be more than a daily resource. Um, so I I, I kind of hope they they scale it back and just add sort of you know their modules that they've been talking about. So if you want fourth edition style healing, then you know kind of do this this style. Yeah, I mean I I feel like there's there's an in between that that would be best. You know, fourth edition may be too far, um, but where it's at right now is just seriously encouraging the five minute workday. We're going to have one or two encounters and then we're going out to rest because we're done. We're out. If we keep going, we'll die. You know, and yeah. to, to the point of ridiculousness. That's not how I'm going to tell my stories about it took you it took you a week to clear out these five rooms. <laughs> right. True. Any other thoughts? What went well? What didn't go well? How the game feels? I've got some other things we can talk about, but I wanted to make sure we've. Hit, uh, I got hit all another. That first. I got another thing. Um, Turn undead. Uh, I, my group and uh, and myself on one of the um, one of the days we played, we did the whole uh, acolyte area. So there was a bunch of uh, undead up there, and um, and the. The cleric just wasn't that spectacular with the undead. Uh, I kind of miss, and, and I like the old idea of like you know sometimes when you would turn undead, they would turn to dust or whatever. If you're higher enough level, obviously we were just at first level, but um, there weren't even sort of those options. But I'm kind of hoping that since turn undead is more like a spell now, and you'll be able to memorize it at a higher level, hmm. then those kind of aspects will come into play later. Okay, yeah, that hasn't come up in my game yet because we haven't gotten there. We've we've cleared out. The goblins and the kobolds, and that's the furthest we've got. <laughs> so. uh, I don't. I felt that uh, the game I played, and we did a lot more social stuff. Like after we got, we got most of the kobolds killed, and then there's the the chieftain and two more, and I was able to convince them to join our side. Actually, I killed the chieftain, and then I was able to convince the other two to to join our side. Mm-hmm. Which was cool, yeah, but I, I don't. I think I, I was gonna say I, I agree. Um, my experience, you know, I've done th- four sessions now, um, and the first session involved a lot of role playing because I'm actually building the whole thing as a campaign. Um, and so there's a setting that the, that the players help develop and, and all this kind of stuff. And so we're gonna fit all of our playtesting into that. And I've made some some setting accommodations to make it possible to change things all the time, um, but. So we did a lot of role playing in the beginning. Then the next two sessions were all just sort of hack and slash. And then this last one, uh, as they're going through, is it the hobgoblin section? Uh, they run into an orc prisoner, mm-hmm. and and they leverage that into actually getting all of the orcs on their side. Like they they talk to them and and you know diplomatize with them and, and negotiated and, and got the orcs to actually sort of support them and back them up in their mission while they're exploring the caves of chaos. Um, through a role-playing that I don't think, like, mechanically, I don't feel like the the mechanics were necessarily there to support or discourage the role-playing, which some, sometimes that's that's good, right? If they can, if the mechanics just get out of the way and let you role-play, that, mm-hmm. that, that's a win sometimes. But I think what did support it and help it was the backgrounds and themes. You know, the one I had one character who was a noble, and he felt like, well, since I'm a noble, it is my role to get up and be the face of these of, of this thing and, and talk to these people and... and work all this out because I'm important 
you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so that on that degree, it did encourage the role playing and that kind of stuff. So, but Tracy, I think I interrupted. Were you in the middle of something? No, no. Okay. Any other thoughts? Uh, I, I mean, this is a real quick one, but like, um, I, I didn't really like the way that surprise works now. I kind of liked, you know, giving one side, you know, a whole round to attack, but mm. probably doesn't, uh, you know, balance out with the new math. I kind of felt like the the minus twenty uh, should have been a plus twenty, maybe for the you, if right. you were yeah. not surprised, you should have gotten a bonus. I mean, it kind of works out the same, but the whole idea of adding is always easier than subtracting. Yeah, and, actually, uh, that's how I run it. I just add twenty. Yeah, yeah, it seemed the same. Um, but yeah, a lot of my players didn't like that either. But I, I, I thought it was pretty much the same because in fourth edition, you get surprise. You know, you kind of you get your one standard action, and then it just becomes cyclical. So everyone goes the same amount. Mm. But there is that. I mean, I don't know. It, it works out a little bit differently there, but but not hugely different. Well, now everybody get if you if I mean you you get surprise on someone, then you get a full round. Whereas before, everybody just got. Uh, standard. Right. I hear you. Any other thoughts? I'm trying to look through here. There was something that I just come upon that um, light. Oh, lighting we noticed was a little bit different. Uh, the uh, uh, what was it? Like the the halfling and the dwarves, they don't have like dark vision or whatever. Mm. It was like everybody had low light vision, and that wasn't explained clearly. So we just sort of like made stuff up about torch size and stuff like that, how far they could see. Yeah, and actually, and that gets into the whole area of of uh, dealing once again after playing fourth edition for so long, starting to deal with cones and uh, and that kind of stuff again um, has mm-hmm. been interesting to try to get back into. In fact, I think next time we play, we're gonna I'm gonna take my chess X map and just flip it right over, and we're gonna do hexes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I actually I noticed that too, Jeff. Did you, uh, did you read through the spell list? There's like. Um, the areas of effect are like cloud, cone, cylinder, line, sphere. It's like, right. I mean, I don't even know what what the advantage of half of those would be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any last thoughts? And then I'm going to move on to the next topic before we wrap this up. Uh, I guess that's it. All right. Good. I do want to talk a little bit about logistics. Less about sort of our play experiences and more about the process of being a playtester, you know, whether it be the agreement or how materials are distributed or how the feedback process works and all that kind of stuff. Cause we've now had one set of rules, um, some time to play. It's been distributed to us, you know, through a specific process. And then we've had one survey to, to provide feedback on. And I just want, I'm curious how all that, how all that uh, felt. And, and we've had the agreement, the online playtest agreement, right? The OPTA, that everybody has to agree to that isn't quite as severe as an NDA. Um, but everybody does sort of have to, have to agree to it. Uh, and that's already gone through a revision, hasn't it? I think there was just a uh, frequently asked questions, right? Okay. Or, or so was there an actual revision? Some, some clarification maybe then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we think about that whole process? The agreements, the distribution of materials, <laughs> the feedback? Well, I mean, the the original distribution was terrible, and I don't know how many hours it took you to get your material, but it was days for me. Mine went quickly, amazingly. I, it just it just kind of showed up. <laughs> I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah, see, I um, I didn't freak out about it. <laughs> you know, I've been th- I've been through enough edition changes at this point. 
uh, and playtesting and the playtesting process and that kind of stuff. I knew I wasn't going to be play te- playing it for a week, so I didn't feel like I had to have it right then and there. We weren't recording anything right, you know, right away. Um, so I didn't feel like it was something that I needed to to get. So everybody's, you know, I, I was getting texts and things from contributors and, and listeners and that kind of stuff. Hey, have, have you downloaded it yet? Have you downloaded it yet? Have you found it? Or you, you, here's the site where you can get it. And I was like, you know what? I'll get it. I, I guarantee I will get it eventually. <laughs> and, if it, and if that means I I'll wait a couple of days when everything's sort of calmed down, fine. I'll wait a couple of days. I'm in no hurry. The one thing that, that I noticed initially um, was the, the lack of uh, online actual online playtesting. Uh, it was specifically prohibited, which was interesting. Um, but that's one of those things that they've uh, updated. Mm-hmm. So online play is now possible. So Tracy can actually right. play now, right? Yeah, it'll be a lot easier for me to play test. Sweet. Uh, I really respected that they actually went back and got that fix. I guess I don't know if that was Trevor's initiative or what, but I thought that was yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That kind of shows that they're paying attention. And one of the things that uh, that I liked, um, uh, Frylock on loremaster.org, he is apparently a, um, a lawyer, and he posted uh, he posts a thing called Protection from Chaos, so it's all a lot of times about uh, just different aspects of the law and D&D. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of goes through and breaks down the playtest agreement, which is kind of interesting to read. And, you know, I, I didn't read a lot of it. And so what he wrote was kind of, you know, enlightening. Uh-huh. Cool. I will link it in the show notes along with all the other links you've sent. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad to finally also be on the open playtest agreement versus the NDA because I, I don't know why I had such a hard time getting some of the people. I, I'm in a Pathfinder game, and a lot of them just have had so much animosity towards wizards. So they didn't like. I had one guy who flat out refused, and then a few other people who were kind of like not sure if they really wanted to sign, and then a few who signed right away, but not enough for a full group. So uh, that really made it hard for me to play test for a while. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also nice to be able to talk about it. Yeah. You know, under the NDA, there was just you know don't you know. And it was hard to talk about anything because, like, if you're playing it and reading the stuff, the the D and D next stuff, and playing another game, like, if you write or talk about it, you kind of want to describe both experiences because it's interesting to see how they're both different. Mm-hmm. But then we couldn't do it. Now, the the interesting thing that I've started thinking about lately with the the NDA versus the OPTA though is is my son. He's six. Um, when it was in the friends and family playtest, I could actually fill out something for him and sign it for him as, as his guardian. And, you know, then he's, he's under the NDA. Fine. Um, but in order to sign the OPTA, you have to have an account on the, on the website. And I don't necessarily want to create an account for him, you know, because <laughs> he's six. And I'm, most sites like that, you know, if anything, have restrictions against certain, you know, uh, youths of that age, you know, signing up and what have you. Yeah, uh, particularly COPA stuff. Right. And so... Yeah, I saw him complaining on Facebook about that. I don't know how to. I don't know how to play. I don't know how to legally play it with my son. Break the law, Jeff. It's okay. Well, whether I do or don't, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> so I'm I'm ready for for the next play test. I don't know when it's going to come out, but uh, I mean I've only played it three times. But like you said, it's you know not a full set of rules. So I feel like. I've read read it enough and played it enough that I want to add more mm-hmm. to it too. Well, to I imagine I imagine we can do with it. I imagine since the survey, the first survey has been completed now, what a week ago. I imagine that we're 
we're looking at a new set of playtest stuff coming out in the next what week or two. I'm guessing. That's just That'd be nice. just just my hunch. I don't actually have any information on that, but that's my guess. Is that in a couple of weeks we might have some some new stuff um, after they've had a chance to look at, at the survey data. Now, did everybody do the survey? Yep. Okay. Well, I didn't because I got there a day late. So, what was the experience like? I thought it went pretty well. Um, questions were somewhat open ended. They you could uh, you know you could add in um, you could type in whatever you wanted, um, or you could just answer. The I think it was one to ten or something like that. I can't remember now, but uh, I thought the questions they asked were were good and made me think about the game and how we played it. Okay, and I'll, I'll be curious because I think as the process goes, like I, this first time around, I think they were just testing the basic core of the game, mm-hmm. and I feel like in future playtest documents and surveys, they're going to be looking for some very specific things. So I'll be curious to see how they how they change the way they ask questions to get at some of these pointed topics that they want to cover. Yeah. Also, be curious to see what the distribution is like as new new documents come out. You know, are, is yeah. it is it gonna is it gonna crash again every time they put out a new document, or is it gonna be stable? And is it gonna be through the same system? Or are we gonna get an email to let us know that this is coming? And, and I don't know. I'll just be curious yeah, to see I, how it all how it all plays out. In this day and age, I really don't see. I mean, I guess they're doing it so they can see how many people download it. Uh, but I don't know if that really matters. What really matters, I would think, would be their feedback. So I think they should just kind of deliver it on a torrent which would be really fast like i really like that eclipse phase like they give away their book and stuff for free they they host their torrent and you can download it and and that's awesome like that i look at that game and i bought it because because you know it was free and i could look at it and and i really liked it so i think there's no reason why they wouldn't shouldn't go to that kind of Uh. model Okay, I, 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 there are tons of reasons uh, that they they can't go to that model. Uh, Why is that? Uh, well, one, they have to make money. Like no, no, I mean, no. For the I'm talking about for the playtest at least. Yeah, no, but even for the playtest, they need to. They want to. I think they want to control the copyright, uh, and and they want to make sure people sign up for sign the opta so they can get them emails about the surveys and stuff. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I think the issue is um, if you haven't signed the agreement, they don't want you to have th- what they would call acceptable access to it. You know, they understand that, that it's going to get out there to people who haven't signed the agreement. Right. So like, what's the difference? The difference is, it's is already out there, but the difference is, is the legal precedent. You know, yeah. if they, if they're providing it without, without you signing the OPTA, that's different than if you got it from somebody else, you know, who's breaking the OPT, OPTA by doing it, you know, they're still protecting their copyright that way. So they have the legal right to it. Whereas if they're just providing it out there for free themselves uh, without any, anybody signing anything, I think that puts them in a, some legal gray areas. Hmm. It's one of those things where the law sometimes gets in the way of common sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, speaking of digital distribution, I, I am concerned that I'm going to be spoiled by the end of the playtest with being able to have everything on my iPad and easily referenced everywhere. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. We'll be I'll, because yeah. Because yeah, I have it. I have a Dropbox folder with a passcode on it, and mm-hmm. I can have it on my iPad and my laptop, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I read it wherever I'm available. Yeah. Yeah. No. I and then when I play, I I DM with a laptop these days um, for reasons that we can get into when we get to that episode about digital tools. Um, 
but I DM with a laptop, so I've always got it open. But then I've got a player with with all the documents on his iPad. So whenever there's a rules question, I can look it up, or or he can look it up, or he can pass his iPad to somebody that we're in. It works really well. Just having those a digital copy of everything has been very nice. Although. Um, we do the same thing with fourth edition, just with the compendium instead of looking at PDFs of, of the document too. For for rules lookups, now for reading it, you're right. It, it's it's very convenient to have a PDF that you can carry with you and, and read where you want to read. And particularly when some of the like backgrounds and stuff have important elements for the game, mm-hmm. uh, being able to look up the story elements is is important. I think. Well, I'm hoping and that. The new edition is also them turning a, a new leaf over on digital distribution, and we'll have access to, to things in the future. Yeah, that'd be nice. Hope cr- so. Cross my fingers. Because <laughs> I've already gone all digital for all of my novel reading. I've gone all digital for my comics. I've gone all digital for everything except for game books, which I basically read once and then put on a shelf and never look at again because if I need to look something up, I'll find it on the compendium. Mm-hmm. So... I just wanted to say one thing real quick. I do love Eclipse Fees, so in case we'll think took took that as a, a downer on Eclipse Fees. We don't want you to be misconstrued or misunderstood around here. I know. Yeah, and I guess now that I think about it, you know, part of the Eclipse Fees thing is that they're under I don't know if it's Creative Commons or something like that, to where you can they actually allow you to kind of redistribute the book, right. like you can physically not physically but digitally change it. And still distribute it as Eclipse Phase or something else. So that's probably a big difference from D and D as well. Sure. Yeah, they're they're under Creative Commons. It's pretty aw- like that that whole thing is pretty awesome. But mm-hmm. I can see it being kind of difficult for a company like Wizards of the Coast to use. Sure. Sure. All right. Any last thoughts? Additional things? Playtest discussion? This is your chance before we close out the episode. What do you people think of? Monsters like the Medusa or the Grey Ooze. I haven't looked at it that much because it hasn't come up my game yet. Okay. That's what I think. Uh, I haven't played the Medusa, but uh, I guess the sleep was sort of similar, right? Where you had to have less than a certain amount of hit points or whatever. And I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan, I guess I should say. Yeah, I didn't play them either. I mean, one thing uh, when I was playing, though, is I was looking at the stat blocks a lot rather than the little shortened versions. So... I guess maybe if you play enough, you'll memorize their powers or something. But I was kind of locked onto the full bestiary stat blocks. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, that's one of my big problems with the, the playtest stuff. They, they yeah, give I you, they, bring that up, too. They give you the short little stat blocks in the adventure, which are just enough to make you think they're useful, but not actually useful. <laughs> right. Know? Because and, – and then, and then the, the same monster listed in the bestiary document has different stats. It does different damage, has different weapons. Right. It's very I feel like that that was sort of an artifact of. I mean, the the play, some of the players had stuff like that too. Like, uh, I forget which ones. Oh, look, well, the the one that comes to mind now is the halfling. We were calling the cat the uh, the halfling sling a catapult because it was doing d8, whereas oh. the uh, the regular sling you know said d6. So we were like, what? But apparently. Uh, that came up in a, uh, I don't know if it was a legend and lore, one of those articles that said that some of those characters had a proficiency sort of with a weapon, and so it allowed them to do more damage. Mm. But that wasn't stated anywhere. See, I, but also, like, go ahead. I was going to say, I, just, I think the, the monster thing is just um, just a lack of consistency that's come, come from all the, the edits and changes. But the shortened stat block, in theory, seems like a good idea. 
but in reality doesn't work because of spells and things, right? All the spells target different ability scores, and the ability scores aren't listed in the shortened stat block. So anytime the wizard has a turn, i got to go to the bestiary document anyway. Yeah, I had a sim experience. Mm-hmm. I feel like they just needed at least, in addition to those powers, need at least another line. One for initiative bonus, so I had to look that up yeah, every time. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, speed wasn't on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, again, to point out um, Teos's blog, he took one of the monsters... And I think he, he made it into fourth fourth edition stat block style, which looks nice. So I, I I think it needs to be kind of more than it is now, but less than fourth edition. Yeah, and I'm hoping that I mean that was one of my early uh, things is that I, I've gotten so used to reading a fourth edition stat block be, uh, that are really simple to sort of figure out where one thing starts and another thing begins because of the table setup and all that. I hope they do something similar. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that they – I mean there's no formatting in much of anything at this point, right? So I'm hoping it's just a lack of formatting and because they're still working on the game and they don't want to worry about all that stuff yet. Um, but I'm hoping that's the direction they go because – and, and that, has, that doesn't need to be a module. That's not a, a way of play, <laughs> you know? Right. That is just a way of formatting that makes it easy to read things. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. My, my thing with the Medusa and the Greaves were more uh, long-standing effects on players – player characters like the medusa has the ability you have to save or be uh petrified and the gray has the corrosion which uh if they don't make a dexterity save can reduce their ac mm-hmm. until they well, fix it <laughs> the, the one thing that you're saying about the stat blocks though i i think in four the stat blocks really um affected the way that you told your story just because you know with the tactical maps and then how much space that the tact that the stat blocks took that it really changed the kind of stories that people were telling with d uh with D. and i i'm really i really don't want to see like larger 40 style stat blocks but i do want to see more than what they're putting in there though which is kind of a throwback to the earlier editions yeah i'm not saying that that i need um i'm not saying that i need the complexity of fourth edition monsters. I just want to see the the formatting of fourth edition stat blocks. Yeah, I, what I was saying though is like I, the, I, I think like the size of the four E stat blocks is is a problem. I really hope they they can somewhere somewhere oh. between the two lines and like an essentials four E stat block. I think it, you know could work. But some of that's also just the number of powers that a monster has, and if, if as we talked about in the news section, right? If they're limiting that then the stat blocks are going to be smaller naturally anyway, even if they do a, a full, fully formatted 4th edition style block. Yeah. So, anyway, Tracy, nobody wants to seem to talk about your powers. Okay. <laughs> no, <it's> pretty- <laughs> Sorry, I didn't read them. Yeah, I, I just don't have the experience with them to talk about them. You know what? Oh. I, I'm going to throw 10 Medusae. Is that right? Yeah, Medusae <laughs> at, my, at my players next time just so that I can, I can talk about it next time for you. That's going to be a lot of whiffing. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't tell them about looking away, and either it'll be a TPK or they'll just keep missing until they get frustrated. Mm-hmm. That'll be awesome. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts? Nope. Nope. I'm fine. Well, good. If you're fine, then you should read the line. I will. <laughs> so, we'd like to thank our guests. Uh, Job, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter as a MetaDM. Uh, my my blog that I don't update so much anymore because I'm 
actually getting paid to write sometimes is metagamemastery.com. And um, also, uh, I just wrote the uh, R- the Free RPG Day Watsi adventure, so uh, Dead in the Eye, you might have seen that. And lastly, um, I also worked on a great uh, adventure called Lost City with Logan Bonner, Tracy Hurley, Quinn Murphy, uh, Michael Ferlinetto, and myself. That's actually um, in the running for an Emmy this year, so hopefully it gets nominated. Uh, wish us luck. Um, that's it. Sweet. And Robert, where can people find you? Um, I'm on the Twitters at Radu. It's R-A-D-D-U 76. And uh, I post on uh, athos.org. You can find some darks and stuff if you like that. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors, GameRadi.com and Continue Magazine. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. That's thetomeshow, all one word, at gmail.com. And call into the Tomes biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find show notes at thetomeshow.com. And this episode looks like it's going to have a lot of them, thanks to some people who like to throw lots of shout-outs out there, which is kind of awesome, because he also provided me links. Yeah, definitely. And that is episode 198, where we took playtesting to the next level, reviewing the D&D Next playtest. On this episode of... I'm off the wall.